Happy New Year. Welcome to the first days of what could be your best year ever in your pursuit of God. This is the time to set your mind on things above, to focus your heart on deepening your spiritual rhythms. You know you want to. That's why you're here after all. I'm Chris Voigt, and I lead the pastoral team here at Dayspring. Our team is standing by, waiting to help you discover the best path forward to deepening your spiritual roots. Whether you are here in the room or watching online, live or on demand at some point in the future. If you are visiting today, we want you to know that this is the kind of family that will enthusiastically welcome you as you are, with all of your questions and doubts, with all of your struggles and brokenness. Here, you can discover Jesus, find healing, and a community who will love you enough to spur you on to emotionally and spiritually healthy living. That's the journey we're on, too. So welcome. You can learn more about us as a church by exploring our website at dsf.church, by checking out our Facebook page, or contacting us by phone or email. If you need help figuring out the next step to making Dayspring your home church, or if you just have questions, let us know. We'll help you find the answers. For today's service, you can find study questions by selecting Watch from the top menu of our website. And now, let's join our service. Uh, By this point in time, many of you already know that my childhood was a bit traumatic. So bear with me for a moment. Uh, We have new people all of the time, and I need to to catch them up. Uh, I am the product of a broken home. Well, broken homes, really. I have three dads who are all in their own way good men who love me. And at the same time, struggled Uh, All three struggled to connect with me, Uh, maybe even still could struggle to connect with me, but certainly as a kid, struggled to connect with me as God created me. Uh, They definitely tried to connect with me as God created them, if that makes sense, and if it doesn't, maybe it will become clearer as I continue. Uh, Also pertinent to the message today, I am the survivor of physical, emotional, mental, and sexual abuse, not by any of my dads, for the record. In the years that my mom was a single mom, some of the people she trusted for our care were, let's just say, sketch. And had my sister and I known that what we experienced in daycare wasn't normal, we would have told her, but we didn't, so she didn't know until we were well into adulthood. Mom, you're probably watching, so not your fault. Let go of your mom guilt. In spite of all of that junk, I didn't really think I had a bad childhood at the time. Well, except for the powdered milk and the generic cornflakes we got on food stamps. Way before Costco made generics that are better than some of the brand name stuff. Uh, We moved around quite a bit, but most of my memories were in the the years that we lived in La Grande, Oregon. Uh, For those of you not familiar with Oregon geography, La Grande is in northeastern Oregon, nestled between Pendleton and Baker City. In the summer after my seventh grade year, dad number three, a trooper for the Oregon State Police, was promoted to a game warden, his dream job, and we moved to Burns, Oregon. From the big city of La Grande to Burns. You can smirk all you want, but La Grande was the biggest city that I had ever lived in to that point, and 
it is in the top 2,500 cities in the US by population, according to Google, and we all know Google knows everything. Uh, though it certainly wasn't uh, all bad, it was in Burns that my childhood memories took a turn for the worse. I was a Christian kid, son of a policeman, the new kid on the block who didn't smoke, chew, or cuss. I didn't play football or basketball or uh, any sport, frankly, including hunting, which ranks right up there with high school sports. I didn't own a pair of cowboy boots uh, or hat, never skipped school, got among the highest grades, and liked to sing. To top it off, though, uh, I had several crushes in high school. Uh, the only girlfriend I had lasted for four days, which wasn't long enough for the bullies to stop the jokes about who I might have a crush on. Uh, you can read between the lines for that one. Needless to say, I graduated high school with honors, a success on the outside, but broken on the inside. I knew that I was not man enough. I was not a real man. Real men love to play sports and watch sports. Real men love to hunt and fish and camp. Real men drink beer with their buddies. Real men have calloused hands because they do real work. Real men have muscles. They can do push-ups. Real men don't sing. They don't play the piano. Real men don't cry. They aren't emotional. Real men don't have girl friends. They have girlfriends. I was not a real man. Now, for the record, I now know that isn't true, although it took me much too long to figure it out, although it is still a lie that triggers my insecurities every now and then. And now I know that I'm not the only man with this insecurity. It is a lie that many men fall victim to. Uh, in our expose of the lies we believe and the truth that sets us free, that is our focus today. The lies that men are particularly susceptible to. Ladies, next week will be your turn. Michelle is going to tackle the most damaging lies that women believe. But before you tune me out, ladies, and this would also apply to the men next week, just because we're focusing on lies men believe today doesn't mean there isn't a female version of the same lie that does damage. The same will be true next week. Just because those lies do particular, particular damage to women doesn't mean they don't also damage men. So, yes, you're going to have to pay attention both weeks and look for the version of the lie that triggers you. Of course, if you're just joining us this week, we aren't simply focusing on the lies. Knowing the lies is only part of the battle. Uh, there is very little power in just knowing the lies. We find the real power in the truth. And the truth giver has infused truth with his power. And when we begin to live out these truths in our lives, his power does its work in us, setting us free from the power of and bondage to the lies. In all, with the help of psychologist and author Chris Thurman from his book, Lies We Believe, we are covering 13 truths that work together to combat or reverse the damage of or free us from the bondage of the lies we believe about ourselves, others, life, and God. The more truth we live out, the more power at our disposal to expose and combat 
lies. Because as we've already seen, the enemy of our souls is sneaky, and he has woven lies and twisted truth in many layers in his quest to destroy people made in the image of God, which just means that his lies often target more than one truth, making it all the harder to unravel those lies. Which is why more truth equals more power. But before we get to our two truths for the morning, let's look at five lies that damage men in particular, that we are more susceptible to. Again, ladies, you won't have to look hard to see how they get you in your own way, too. First up, I don't have what it takes to be a man. To which I personally say, yes, I do. I am enough. Our culture sends us a barrage of messages about what it takes to be a real man. Uh, Messages that prompt us to compare ourselves with other men that leave us, most of us, feeling like failures. Real men are like James Bond. They like their martinis shaken, not stirred, and they go through women like water through a sieve. Real men are ruggedly handsome, muscly, walk around chewing on a toothpick, although back in the day it would have been a cigar, but that isn't PC nowadays. Uh, James Dean, John Wayne, Sean Connery, Tom Cruise, Denzel, one of Dee Dee's favorites, Shamar, and any of the Chris's, Hemsworth, Evans, Pratt, Pine, <laughs> or Voight. As a side note, Dee Dee gave me this book for Christmas. I'm dreaming of a Chris for Christmas. I hated my name growing up because Chris became Chrissy in the mouth of a bully. Little did I know that how many fantastic Chrises there are. On the inside cover she wrote, you're the only Chris I'll ever want or need. Oh, shucks, honey. (laughs) Hollywood is fantastic at giving us a picture of real manhood. And it's hard to live up to that image. Of course, none of that has anything to do with authentic manhood. God doesn't equate manhood with how big and strong we are, but how we humbly use our strength. God doesn't equate manhood with how many women we've slept with, but how healthily we express our sexual desires with our wife. God doesn't look at how far we climb up the corporate ladder, but whether we did our job with all of our hearts as working for the Lord, not our human bosses. God doesn't look at how well we fix leaky pipes or broken engines, but how well we use whatever abilities he has given us. When God made us in his image, he equipped us with everything we need to be real men. And when we gave our lives to Christ, he supernaturally empowered us with everything we need to be real, godly men. Over time, as we grow and mature and become like Jesus, to which I can only say, thank you, God. The second lie that men are particularly susceptible to is that it's not okay to feel sad, scared, or hurt. 
Real men have tough skin. Nothing ever gets to them. Real men don't cry, no matter how bad it gets. Keep a stiff upper lip and never let them see that you're hurting. Sweep it all under the rug because having feelings might let them see that you're really just a sensitive teddy bear. It isn't healthy to deny your feelings, not emotionally or physically. We talked about this a lot last fall in our series, How to Get Through What You're Going Through. Ignoring your emotions, stuffing, sweeping it under the rug does damage, and that damage has a ripple effect from your emotional health to your physical and spiritual health as well. God wired us to feel. He feels. Anxious feelings are a gift from God. They tell us that there is something that we need to pay attention to. Hurt is a gift from God when someone disrespects us or is unappreciative or disloyal. Hurt tells us that we need to pay attention to what's going on inside of us or in the relationship. Emotions often help identify areas for growth in our lives if we don't ignore them. Being in touch with your emotions is a strength we should all strive for, not a weakness that makes us less manly. Real strength is facing our emotions like an adult and working through them in healthy ways. Also, men, the third lie that damages us and often our credibility with others is my good intentions ought to satisfy everyone. Okay, few of us are this blunt about it, but I, I meant to be at your game, but I couldn't get away from work. I meant to help out more around the house, but I'm so tired when I get home. I meant to. Good intentions ought to be enough. Judge me by my motives, not my actions. Which means that I did show up to one game this season, which is more than last year, so be grateful I'm improving. Plus, you do have a roof over your head. It also means that that one time I helped with the dishes this week deserves a trophy. Or that tiny little bit of thoughtfulness should be rewarded with sex. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. Good intentions don't get credit until they are acted on. I know that sounds harsh, men, but authentic men find ways to give their, their loved ones what they need from us. Let's actually give them the love and support they need from us. Good intentions don't deserve extra credit. Actions speak louder than words. Line number four, sex is about my pleasure and enjoyment. Now, if you're at home and have small kids around, you might want to send them to the kitchen for goldfish crackers for a second. Here in the room, well, sorry, maybe cover their ears. And before we dive into this one, let me say this first. No married couple has a perfect sex life. That bears repeating. No married couple has a perfect sex life. No matter what Hollywood tries to shove down our throats, it just isn't true. Sex inside of marriage is a very complex issue. Outside of marriage, it isn't. Just don't. But inside of marriage, it is a complex issue. With that said, Men, we can be pretty self-centered in the bedroom. We are often more concerned with our own pleasure over our wives. One of the ways we have wounded women through history is by turning them into sex objects and making sex all about our feeling good. Our approach to sex 
often puts our wives in a no-win situation. To say yes risks enabling our selfishness and seeing them as objects. To say no risks being accused of withholding and selfishness at best. And no could lead to far worse options over time. Like, nobody wins when a man makes sex all about his own pleasure. And to be clear, I am talking about everything that leads up to sex, as well as the act itself. Sex, in the context of a God-designed marriage, is a gift from God. It should be enjoyed mutually, and when it is approached mutually, the result is a win-win situation where both people feel loved and valued. Men, as Chris Thurman says in his book, may we work harder at making the bedroom about our wives' satisfaction, not our own, and make love to their souls before we presume to make love to their bodies. Okay, enough said on that subject. For now, I say, I would say that um, I didn't mean to make us all uncomfortable, but that wouldn't be true. Uh, if you are uncomfortable, you might need to talk to God about why. Line number five, I can do life by myself. I have pretty broad shoulders. I have a strong sense of personal responsibility for the responsibilities that have been entrusted to me at home with my family and here at church. I'm also a pretty capable guy. Put those together and I can sometimes feel a little like John Wayne. I have a hard time asking for and receiving help. The same is true emotionally. I am the rock for many people. People depend on my consistency and faithfulness, which also means that it can be hard for me to not be okay. The ripple effect of my not being okay can make life harder than not being okay itself is, which can feel lonely if I'm not careful. And I know I'm not alone, right, men? God didn't design us to be lone rangers. In fact, even the lone ranger had Tonto. And way back in the Garden of Eden, very early in creation, God was serious when he said, it is not good for the man to be alone. Even in the most perfect setting the earth has ever known, we are better in community. We were meant to do life together. We are better together. We are stronger together. We heal in community. We make better decisions in community than we do alone, which is why God gave us each other and why Satan works so hard to isolate us. It's way easier to pick us off when we, when we do life by ourselves. He does his best work in isolation. We need each other. Uh, men, the only way that James Bond and Jesus are like each other is that they are both tough. But they are tough in different ways. And we know there really is no comparison when it comes to the kind of man that you want to be. Unless you really are a secret agent, then you might find one or two. Christ wants you to know that you are man enough. He has given you everything you need to be an authentic man. And authentic men hurt and feel along the way. They aren't afraid of their emotions. Authentic men do what they say. They have a healthy approach to their sexuality, remaining true body, soul, and spirit to their wives and they aren't lone rangers. Let's call that real manhood. Bringing us to our first truth for this morning. And this is for everyone, not just men. You are a person of great worth. 
the, the great psalmist King David put it this way in Psalm 139. Uh, these words are familiar to many of us, so let's read them out loud together. David wrote, you made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous. How well I know it. We didn't really read that like we meant it. I think we mean it when we see a little baby, but somehow as we get older in translation, that gets lost. And we all have this inner voice and that to varying degrees, that, that inside voice is our greatest enemy. It knows all of our hopes and dreams, all of our weaknesses and failures and struggles. And it runs through a pretty predictable script that is both unique to each of us and the same in each of us. Unique in that we are all unique people with different triggers, different fears, different failures and successes, and yet also the same. Failure is failure no matter how it happened. Fear is fear no matter what you're fearful of. This script runs in the background all day and sometimes night, tearing us down, making us doubt, making us feel unworthy, making us feel alone and isolated, like we are the only ones who struggle, making us feel like we are less than, that we are not enough, not enough of a man or woman, not spiritual enough, not enough as a husband or wife, father or mother, not enough. It takes quite a while for God to, repro to reprogram that script. And even then, are you ever really completely free? I'm not sure. I know I'm not there yet. In order for us to be emotionally healthy people, we must understand our great worth. Our worth is immeasurable, unchanging, unalterable. In order to be emotionally healthy people, we must be able to embrace these words of David about ourselves and be truly thankful, maybe even content in all the right ways, for who God created you to be, with all of your strengths and abilities, with all of your weaknesses and failings. Who you are is enough. But that inside voice gets in the way, and that negative script is rooted in one word, shame. Shame is part of the human experience. In our immaturity, we frequently feel shame. Everyone is bigger, smarter, richer, better at life than we are. We don't measure up. And that is for some reason shameful, and that inner script won't let us forget it. During our formative years, shame often metabolizes. It easily becomes malignant, deeply rooted in our psyche, depending largely on our environment. Toxic shame shows up in the form of poisonous lies about the self in four primary ways. First, toxic shame says, I'm worthless. And every time you miss the mark, it underscores your worthlessness. How people respond when you do something wrong can easily subtract from your sense of worth. Second, toxic shame says, I'm unworthy of being loved. Inside of you is this sense that you are a fatally flawed human being and you don't deserve the love and acceptance of others. If 
only they knew what I was really like on the inside, how broken I really am. You feel like you have to earn love and acceptance. In the past, I've talked about this in my life. Not only did I feel like I needed to earn your love, but it rolled over into how I saw my relationship with God. Third, toxic shame says it's always my fault when relationships go bad, especially when others blame you for a relationship that isn't going well. Toxic shame makes you believe it's true. If something goes wrong in the relationship, it must be your fault. And then fourth, toxic shame says it's not okay to, to be human and make mistakes, which we talked about a few weeks ago. For shame-based people, there is very little wiggle room for being imperfect or allowing others to be imperfect. The good news is that you aren't alone. All seven and a half billion people on the planet have shame issues to one degree or another. To a certain degree, all four of these are true for all of us, and I guess that's the bad news. We all have Adam and Eve to thank for that. They were the first to feel naked and ashamed, and they passed it down to us. Shame is one of the greatest tools of Satan. Listen to this. This is an important truth. Shame never comes from God. Now, let's look at how Christ managed the shame of someone who probably had all four versions of shame shaping her, destroying her life. It is one of the most well-known interactions Jesus had. An angry mob maliciously brought an adulterous woman to Jesus for him to pass judgment. John chapter 8 tells the story. Interestingly, uh, this uh, story doesn't appear in uh, the earliest manuscripts of John, but most scholars believe that it occurred and is a credible account of how Jesus interacted with people. So let's remind ourselves of the scene. John chapter 8, verse 1. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? Now, this woman was literally caught in the act of adultery. Put yourselves in her shoes for a moment. Can you imagine how humiliating that would be? Your secret sin laid bare for all to see. No understanding among them, just out for blood, literally. She was probably dragged at least half naked to the temple of all places, the most holy place in the city, brought before Jesus in front of the, the entire crowd that had gathered to hear him speak. To the Pharisees, she was just an object to prove a point, not a person of worth. She was completely, publicly humiliated. And by the way, if she was caught in the act, where was the man? It takes two to tango. Some commentators have suggested that the man was actually a Pharisee himself and that his fellow Pharisees didn't want to embarrass or humiliate one of their own. Under the Old Testament law, adultery was punished by death. 
And the Pharisees wanted Jesus to be the one to condemn her, not for any righteous reasons, but because they wanted to trap him. If Jesus joined them in stoning her, he would be breaking Roman law, which didn't allow the Jews to carry out death sentences. And he would be breaking Jewish law, which required that both people caught in the act of adultery be stoned. On the other hand, if he didn't stone her, they could accuse him of being soft on crime and unwilling to follow Jewish law. They wanted to trap him in a no-win situation so that either way, they could attack his character and diminish his popularity with the people. But the genius of Jesus is that he is a genius. And with one sentence, he put them in their place. Verse 6, they were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and he wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer. So he stood up again and said, all right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. And then he stooped down again, <laughs> started writing in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. One simple sentence. Look in the mirror, friends. Jesus placed himself in the intersection, neither soft on crime nor unloving and shaming. And one by one, they slip away. But Jesus isn't done yet. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. Christ essentially said to this woman and to all who stand before him in shame, I don't condemn people for the evil they do, but don't take advantage of my grace by continuing to live a life of sin. Leave the shame-based life you are living and stop acting like you are worthless. Instead, live as the person I created you to be of immeasurable worth, prized and treasured by God himself. Shame never erases shame. Only living freely in the grace and love of God as the precious image bearer you are can erase shame. To help us be emotionally healthy people, we need to learn to distinguish between three aspects of self. We often confuse uh, these aspects or consider them to be the same thing, which makes navigating ourselves out of shame a little harder. First is worth. Most people make the mistake of finding their worth in how they perform every day. We talked about this a bit earlier in the series. Looking at our story from John, the woman would have very little sense of worth, if any, because of her sinful and immoral life. However, the Pharisees would have walked around with a great sense of worth because of how well they kept the law. Neither is an accurate picture of worth. You have worth because you are wonderfully and fearfully made by God in His image, period, end of story. Worth is not something you can change by either good or bad behavior. It just is. Uh, the world would use the term self-worth 
but technically there is no self-worth. There is only God-worth. And given that we are all created in the image of God, whether we are Christ followers or not, we have the same permanent worth. It will never be higher or lower. Billy Graham and Hitler have the same worth, biblically speaking. The second aspect of self is identity. Most people get their identity from the roles they play in life, like me saying my identity is a pastor, a husband, a father, or a pops. As the COVID shutdowns began almost two years ago, many pastors struggled with their identity when the room was empty. But all of those titles, pastor, husband, father, best grandpa in the world, are simply roles that I play in life. They aren't my identity. Here's the truth. Your identity is only determined by one thing. Are you a child of God or a child of the enemy? You are either a Christ follower or you are not. Your identity isn't what you do. You aren't an accountant, a teacher, a roofer, a truck driver, an administrative assistant, a lawyer, a custodian, an American, an alcoholic, a workaholic, a saint, or a sinner. You are either a child of God or you are not. And if you are here today or watching online and you haven't done so before, I suggest that you consider asking him to adopt you into his family and giving you a brand new identity. And then the third aspect of self is self-esteem. Worth and self-esteem are not the same thing. Worth comes from being made in the image of God and it never goes up and down. On the other hand, self-esteem is tied to your performance and is supposed to go up or down based on that performance. Uh, for example, we are entering tax season. Say you are an accountant like our Andy, the guy who oversees all of our live streaming. And let's say you aren't a very good accountant. None of your clients has an accurate tax return. You make a lot of mistakes. In this case, you shouldn't have a very high self-esteem as an accountant. You are a bad accountant. But if you are like Andy and you only do top-of-the-line accounting and your tax returns are stellar, then you should have a, a good self-esteem as an accountant. Self-esteem is tied to your performance, good or bad, given the level of talent and ability you bring to the table. Self-esteem should never be based in, by comparison to someone else. We all bring different levels of talent and ability. Good self-esteem should come from you bringing your best to the situation. We live in a world that thinks people should have a high self-esteem no matter how they mess up. We are teaching our kids that they should have a high self-esteem no matter how they perform, academically, athletically, or artistically, and that's not biblical. We want kids to find their worth apart from their performance. But in order to do that, we have to do the same. The father of lies wants you to believe that you are worthless and unworthy of love. God wants you to believe you have immeasurable worth because he made you in his image. Who are you going to believe? You are a person of great worth. Go and sin no more. Our second truth for the day, the world owes you nothing. No one owes you anything. No one. 
There is a growing spirit of entitlement in the world today. And before your inside voice says, yeah, they've got it all wrong, before you make that a they problem and not a you problem, have you ever said something like this? I expect my spouse to help out around the house, or I demand you show up on time, or I deserve a promotion. Expect, demand, and deserve are code words for entitlement, whether we actually say the words out loud or not. In order to experience the highest levels of emotional health, we must rid ourselves of our attitude of entitlement, which is harder than it sounds. We all have some degree of an entitlement mentality in us. It's just more noticeable in some people than others. But this arrogance of soul will only end up leading you down a bitter, resentful, ungrateful, unforgiving, destructive path. And I know none of us wants that. We've already addressed our innate sense of narcissism when we talked about it not being all about you uh, just a couple of weeks ago. I'm not going to impact that much, but it is connected. Instead, here are some markers of an entitlement problem. There are more than I will list, but this will get you started as you evaluate yourself. First, entitled, the entitled make everything about themselves. They can't let someone else share center stage. Their life, their examples, their experience is more important than yours. They one-up people around them. Oh, I'm sorry that happened to you, but let me tell you my story. Second, the entitled come off as a manipulative, demanding bully. Their way of looking at things is better than any of everyone else's. They try to dominate others into agreeing with their way. Third, they take more than they give. They take more than they give. Their needs are more important than others' needs, and they expect to be catered to. Fourth, they step on others because they see others as competition. They'll gladly throw others under the bus to achieve their goals or get their way. They exploit others. Uh, Entitled people have double standards. They demand or expect to be treated or given everything, but don't do the same in return. They lack empathy for others. They are indifferent to the emotional pain others are in, but expect people to empathize with their pain and feel sorry for them. They might fake it, but they don't really care. And last, they refuse to compromise. It's my way or the highway. They rarely listen to or receive input from others, even when others are smarter or more competent. They refuse to meet others halfway. Again, there are more characteristics, but these are pretty common. And do you see yourself in any of these characteristics? Once again, let's look at one of Jesus' interactions with a group of people who seem to have a sense of entitlement judging by their behavior and and the way that they responded when Christ did them the favor of a lifetime. Well, all but one. For this, let's look at a story in Luke chapter 17, beginning in verse 11. As Jesus continued toward Jerusalem, he reached the border between Galilee and Samaria. Now, he was in northern Israel at this point, working his way south. So he reached the border between Galilee and Samaria. And as he entered a village there, ten men with leprosy stood at a distance, crying out, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Okay, now let's be honest here. For most of us, the only thing we know about leprosy is that it was bad. In the time of Christ, it was a death sentence. It was a horrific disease. And once a priest determined you had it, you could only associate with other lepers for the rest of your life. You couldn't be around your spouse. 
your kids, or your friends, you were an outcast. Anytime someone came near, you had to cry out, unclean, unclean, to warn them to stay away from you. But that's not all, folks. Leprosy had horrific physical effects as well. Leprosy is caused by a bacterium that attacks the nerves and skin. It starts as a white or pink patch of skin and spreads in all directions, leaving sores, ulcers, tumors, uh, and severe tissue damage. Eventually, you end up losing fingers, toes, and limbs. It can attack your eyes, causing blindness. It can even penetrate your teeth, causing them to fall out. It can invade your larynx, giving you a raspy, weak voice. And all of that comes with a terrible, nauseating smell. The loss of sensation can be deadly because lepers can no longer experience pain. Uh, lepers uh, can make everything worse by reaching into fires, walking on splintered glass, and washing in, with scalding water. So did I say bad? It was horrible. Lepers were dead men or, or women walking, if they could walk at all condemned to a lonely, poverty-stricken existence. Enter Jesus. He comes upon these ten lepers and has compassion. Interestingly enough, he didn't heal them on the spot. He simply told them to go to the person who could pronounce them clean once again. And they did. He looked at them and said, Go show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed of their leprosy. In the blink of an eye, they were given back their lives. Can you imagine how thankful they must have been? Surely they all returned to Jesus to offer their thanks. Or not. One of them, when he saw that he was healed, came back to Jesus, shouting, praise God. He fell to the ground at Jesus' feet, thanking him for what he had done. This man was a Samaritan. Do you know who didn't come back to Jesus? Jesus' fellow Jews, the other nine lepers. A lowly, half-breed Samaritan is the only one who came back to Jesus. We talked about Samaritans a few weeks ago. They were hated by the Jews, and they hated the Jews. But like we saw a few weeks ago, the Samaritan was the only one who got it right. Only he had his priorities straight. And he didn't just come back. He was loud and celebrating, dancing in the streets with sheer joy before he threw himself down at Jesus' feet. And Jesus ends this interaction with what would have been a rhetorical question. In verse 17, Jesus asked, Didn't I heal ten men? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And Jesus said to the man, stand up and go. Your faith has healed you. I guess the other nine, even though they had been in the same boat with the Samaritan, felt entitled to the mercy of Jesus for all of the suffering that they had experienced as lepers. There is something about experiencing significant suffering, especially unjust suffering, that can build up a sense of entitlement. The master should have made things right as he passed through the village that day. The other nine got what they wanted out of Jesus and never looked back. They had no impulse to worship or thank him for his incredible act of kindness and mercy. 
we have the same choice. Demand or want, expect or hope, deserve or desire. Very quickly, here's how you beat entitlement. First, turn away. Reject the entitlement attitude in all of its variations. Expect, demand, and deserve. Ask God to reveal those attitudes in you and ask for forgiveness for your arrogance. Second, change your terms. Instead of I demand, use I want. Instead of I expect, use I hope. Instead of I'm own, I'm owed, use I would like. I expect you to help out around the house is, very, is a very different sentence than I want you to help out around the house. There is also a big difference between I deserve a good life and I desire a good life. I, I know this seems like such a minor thing, but words matter internally and externally. Shifting from a faulty mindset to a biblical mindset involves shifting from faulty words to biblical words. Next, learn to ask. We need to get better at this. We are pretty good at not asking people and expecting people to read our minds. But what about phrases like, would you be willing to? Or, I would appreciate it if you would. Ask nicely. It's amazing how kind people can be when you ask nicely. By the way, God is included in our learning to ask nicely for what we hope for. And then react with grace, especially when you don't get what you want. People have free will. They can say no just like you can say no. But be gracious. And last, be grateful to God. At the end of the day, we need to take all of our wants and desires to God and know that if they are legitimate, He will meet them as only He can. And the, the way love works, we love God when we love others. Being grateful to others when they meet our needs is giving thanks to God. We bless God when we bless others. Because no one owes you anything. The world owes you nothing. The people you love owe you nothing. It's not biblical love if it comes with demands or expectations or if you think you deserve it. Anything you get is a gift. Okay, that's a lot to digest. So let's pray. Ah, Father, you are so good. You are so good. As we've been praying, Father, we pray that you would free us from bondage to lies, and that we would live lives deeply rooted in truth. Father, may we come to not just understand, but to really believe and live out the truth that we have great worth. And our worth isn't determined by how we mess up, but by you. That alone, if we could come around that truth alone, so much in our lives would fall into place. And so much of the crud would fall away. Thank you for the gift of your son. We didn't deserve Jesus, 
but we're thankful for him. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us today. Please reach out if you have any questions or want help on your spiritual journey. My email address is on the screen, or you can call the church during the week. This ministry is made possible because of people like you, people who believe in what God is doing through Dayspring. Your financial generosity is proof of God's work in your life. If you are just checking us out today, please know that we don't expect you to give anything to support Dayspring. This is the responsibility of our Dayspringers. Just enjoy the rest of your day. If you'd like to start giving, we have three easy ways for you to get us your gift. Please see the online giving section of our website or text GIVE to the number on your screen or mail a check to us at the address you'll find on our website. Also, thank you for liking and sharing and following Dayspring on whatever platform you are on. It means a lot to me when you pass on the good news of Jesus to your friends and family. Until next week, may you experience God's favor and blessing in your life.